Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 200. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to Starship Sova's 200th show. How cool is that? Wow. <laughs> So, we have some news, a little bit disappointing news, but hey, we can take it on the chin and carry on. But I'll tell you what's coming into today's show. First up, we have, looking back in genre history, Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction comes from Aliette Debaudin. Next up, Hugo Fact Article Review by Andy Thomaswick. Then we have an interview with an English UK author, Jane Finn. So that is what's coming in today's show. But before all that, the Hugos were announced last, I think it was last week or just a few days ago to be quite honest. And unfortunately, the good ship Starship so far didn't win. I think we came third. So, you know, I can't get better than that to be quite honest, in the running for it. And, you know, to be quite honest, once you've kind of, you know, hey, I've got the bloody award, you know what I mean? It's just, it's fantastic. Have the award for 2010. But when you watch, the, you know, if anyone gets a chance to watch the Hugo Awards, it was Chris Garcia from the Drink Tank fanzine. You know, you watch him, he's kind of, you know, when he finds out he's won. And if anyone's watched actually the video when I did it last year, when, you know, it's just an emotional thing. And, you know, just explodes out of, you know, all kind of, you know, just, it's just an unreal to watch him, you know, like how happy you can be for someone, you know, I wouldn't take that away from him, to be quite honest, because it's just, and apparently, I seen a t-shirt, you know, last year, I think I was looking around all the kind of fanzines, and I seen a t-shirt that, um, with, you know, with, <laughs> with Garcia in it there, and, you know, it said six times Hugo loser, 
Do you know? But I found out, I think, reading on Boing Boing the day that ten times now, Hugo loser. You know, so that's honestly that those few seconds when it just and the winner is, you know, you just you know, there's not many people that kind of been there to kind of feel that experience. So I can imagine, you know, because just like say I exploded the last time when you know drink tank won and to have it, you know, to be a loser ten times over. You know, then to win, you know, the guy just totally breaks down, do you know what I mean? It's just flabbergast, and it's lovely to see that, do you know what I mean? So like I say, Starship Sova's won it, you know, yes, there might be next times, you know, fingers crossed there might be, but to know someone appreciated as much, you know, is just a remarkable thing. So please, see if you can watch that video, and it, it, like you say, that's that's what the Hugos do to people, <laughs> especially if you lost, you know, you've been nominated ten times. So, and he's been in the business apparently years as well. So, that's great news, you know, fantastic news. And also, just a little bit, I'll try and get Cheryl on a little bit, you know, Cheryl Morgan to kind of talk about it more and put like a, you know, kind of professional perspective on it. But they voted, the Hugo General Annual General Meeting voted next year to for the kind of, fanzines to be kind of split to make podcasts and video casts and everything like that have their own separate little category called fan casts now what they're going to do next year at the chicago Worldcon is actually vote to see if that becomes the the rule so this year they said they'll let chicago vote on it they'll nominate and they'll propose this vote and next year there'll be chicago that'll say yes we'll do that so that'll be Actually, that'll be nice, you know, because then you'll you'll get rid of that kind of. Because there was a few people, you know, the, the podcasts on fanzines, and you know, yeah, forget all that. And you know, if if that does come about, then you know we'll have our own kind of little section. And you know, whether Starships over gets nominated again or not, I'm you know that's in the lap of the gods. But that's what's going to happen. So, and you know, and probably. In, in the world, in, in the kind of, it's the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? If they've got their own separate one, you know, hopefully it'll work. So we'll, we'll wait and see, but a big congratulations to Drink Tank. Do you know what I mean? It's just a remarkable achievement what he's done. He's like, he's been doing these Drink Tanks for donkeys, you know what I mean? And been nominated 10 times for a Hugo Award. It's, well, I'm, I'm actually, you know, you get choked when you see it, you know what I mean? He kind of, at one point he collapses on the stage and he's just lying, well, he's sitting down on the stage, just shaking his head, so congratulations to Drink Tank. Starship's over, we'll live to fight another day. We just want to say a big congratulations there, you know, amazing stuff. So, back on to show 200, and if anyone's listening has kind of come aboard Starship Sofa, this is actually show 200, but it's not really, no, 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 I think we've probably got about 310 shows, somewhere around there, maybe 305 shows, because there was, in the early years of Starship Sofa, when me and Kieran did it, you know, there was at least, you know, 100 and something shows done then, I think me and Kieran did about up to show 67, somewhere around that. Then I did a few, and I remember, I think Amy did maybe a couple. I'm not too sure. So there is some kind of hidden shows out there. You know, actually, they're going to go on in the shop one day soon. Get Josh to get himself together and get doing that. But there is. So, yes, I'm saying show 200 is when kind of I took over. 
and we unveiled the, the new Starship Sova and we kind of kicked off with that Michael Moorcock London Bone story. So that's when this show 200th, you know, come about from that. That's the, the kind of turning point when it was quite bizarre just, just like going back in history a little bit. Yeah. It just, I could, when me and Kieran started, you know, we were going in depth into kind of writers and then I carried on. And I was always, even when Kieran were doing it, I was always worried we'd run out of like science fiction writers to cover. And Kieran, no, I'll never, never run out of science fiction writers. But then when Kieran left, that nag still was, was in me. So yeah, you'd have science fiction writers, but you wouldn't have them, them kind of great science fiction. You'd eventually cover them all. You know what I mean? So I knew Starship's over one way or other had to change. And I certainly wasn't prepared or, you know, down in the dumps to give it up. Do you know what I mean? And it was that kind of turning point when, no, I think actually that was, I was going to say when I, when I kind of fell over and had me a little bad accident, but I think that was around about show 70 when that kind of, you know, that's how we kind of, me and Kieran moved apart. That was the turning point. But I think we got to, you know, the roundabout show 100 when I was realizing this is getting, it's getting harder to kind of produce these shows to do it kind of all myself. And not to kind of worry, because that's what I like. I don't like worry. <laughs> Anybody, I just, you know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a guy for an easy life. And I just knew if I could turn around, and the way it's worked out now is, it's quite nice to put the show together, you know what I mean? I'm not doing the hard work. You know, all the contributors, Amy, JJ Campanella, you know, everyone is doing the kind of the, the hard graft of it. I'm just kind of knitting it all together, you know, and putting it out. And that's the way why, I suppose, Starship Sovers went on as much as it has done and keep going. Because everyone is helping out. So that's 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 why, and I guess that's what Show 200 is about, you know, celebrating we're still being going this long. Who can tell how far we'll go into the future? You never know. <laughs> But anyways, let's start off Starship Sova's show 200th with fantastic Amy H. Sturgis with looking back at genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, with your indulgence, I'd like to talk about a project I'm very pleased to have been a part of, a new project that relates directly to the question of genre history, and also relates to a current science fiction television series, one I highly recommend, Fringe. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, Fringe is an American science fiction series created by J.J. Abrams, Alex Kurtzman, and Roberto Orsi. It began in 2008 and is getting ready this fall to start its fourth season. And you don't have to take it from me. I happen to know that a Mr. Tony C. Smith also recommends it. Fortunately, the folks at Smart Pop Books, which is an imprint of Ben Bella Books, found the series worthy of deeper exploration. And thus, the nonfiction collection, written to be accessible to all science fiction fans, Fringe Science, Parallel Universes, White Tulips, and Mad Scientists, will be published on August 30th, 2011. The collection is edited by Kevin Grazier, who has been a research scientist at NASA, 
served as the science advisor for shows like Eureka and Battlestar Galactica, and lectured on astronomy, cosmology, and other out-of-this-world topics at universities such as UCLA. And yes, it just so happens to include an essay by yours truly. My essay is entitled In Search of Fringe's Literary Ancestors, and I go all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century to trace the literary texts that inform and inspire the television series. Before I get all self-involved talking about my essay, let me give you a quick rundown of the other chapters in the book and the science writers and science fiction writers who are contributing to the volume. Other essays include Paranormal is the New Normal by David Thomas, The Return of 1950s Science Fiction in Fringe by Paul Levinson, Parallel Universes by Max Tegmark, Deja Nu by Mike Brotherton, The Malleability of Memory by Garth Sundam, Fringe Diseases by Jovanna Gribic, The Fringes of Neurotechnology by Brendan Allison, of White Tulips and Wormholes by Stephen Cass. Moo by Amy Burner. Waltered States by Nick Mamatas. Fringe Double-Blinded Me with Science by Robert T. Jeschenek. And Massive Dynamic by Jacob Clifton. You may recognize several of those names. Nick Mamatas, for example, is a horror, science fiction, and fantasy author and editor who's been nominated for the Hugo Award and several Bram Stoker Awards and won a Bram Stoker Award and a World Fantasy Award. Max Tegmark is an MIT physics professor. Stephen Cass is the founding editor of Discover's Science Not Fiction blog and a senior editor with Technology Review. And Garth Sundam is the best-selling author of Brain Candy. Needless to say, I'm very pleased to be in such august company. So, what does my essay deal with? As Sir Isaac Newton remarked, if I have seen further, it is only by standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, I think Fringe was built on the shoulders of giants. It is a show with unusually deep genre roots, and so the purpose of my essay is to go back and trace those roots as deep as they go. I have a section specifically on Fringe as the new Frankenstein. By admission of the creators, Frankenstein was the model on which Fringe was built. And the show really takes on a great deal of meaning when you look at it through that lens. I also have a section on early science fiction investigators, starting with Edgar Allan Poe, his notion of ratiocination and genre. And I've talked about those things on several past episodes of Starship Sofa. Another section traces the different literary science fiction investigators from Nathaniel Hawthorne's Rappuccini, to Seabury Quinn's Jules de Grandin, really about a hundred years worth of literary investigators. I also look at some of the television science fiction investigators who also drew from some of these literary inspirations and pretty much paved the way for the main characters in Fringe.
If the literary protagonists were the ancestors to Fringe, then these television predecessors are sort of the missing link between the two. Here I'm talking about characters from Professor Quatermass to Fox Mulder and Dana Scully of the X-Files. And the last section deals with the extremely strong influence of H.P. Lovecraft on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know Fringe, FBI agents Olivia Denham and Astrid Farnsworth work with mad scientist Dr. Walter Bishop. And I mean mad when I say mad. He was taken out of a lunatic asylum and his son Peter Bishop to investigate bizarre events that can't really be explained through the traditional work of major law enforcement agencies. While many of these events seem to be related to Walter's previous research about and experience with an alternate universe, a number of others imply a coordinated scientific interest in our own universe by some unknown and powerful third party. As special agent in charge Philip Broyles says, it's, quote, as if someone out there is experimenting, only the whole world is their lab. Members of the Fringe Division, among others, call these mysterious happenings the pattern. And this really is at the heart of the series. Some of you may already be sensing a Lovecraftian vibe here. It's noteworthy that each of the concepts that Agent Olivia Dunham mentions at the beginning of the first season, in her description of fringe science, quote, mind control, teleportation, astral projection, invisibility, genetic mutation, reanimation, end quote. All of these things appear as plot elements in one or more stories by Lovecraft. For that matter, Olivia's explanation of the pattern, quote, inexplicable and frightening things are happening and there's a connection somehow, end quote, could substitute as a synopsis for any number of Lovecraft's writings, or really as a summary of his entire body of work as a whole. Really, with the exceptions of Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein, and Edgar Allan Poe, the champion of ratiocination, who've set the stage for science fiction investigators, no other author of early science fiction has left a greater imprint on Fringe than H.P. Lovecraft. You know, I've talked about him many times before, the master of weird fiction, who blended a distinctly modern form of cosmic horror with a science fiction sensibility. His protagonists include intelligent and sensitive scholars, scientists, researchers, and medical men who genuinely want to uncover answers about the universe around them. Often they become drawn into specific investigations due to their personal relationships or professional pursuits, and once on a case they pursue it doggedly. What they discover horrifies them and sometimes costs them their sanity or their lives. In nearly every case, these investigators discover that humanity is small in a vast and impartial universe, and we are threatened by forces we can scarcely comprehend. So characters such as Professor Francis Wayland Thurston from The Call of Cthulhu in 1828, or Professor William Dyer from At the Mountains of Madness in 1936, Dr. Elihu Whipple from The Shunned House in 1937, and Dr. Marinus Bicknell from the case of Charles Dexter Ward in 1941, 
are obvious ancestors of the members of the Fringe Division's science team in Fringe. The character most relevant to Fringe, however, is Lovecraft's own parody of Victor Frankenstein. You may recall that I said that Frankenstein was the model for Fringe. Lovecraft's parody was the iconoclastic and unorthodox Dr. Herbert West of Herbert West Reanimator from 1922. Rather than create new life, West wishes to restore life to dead bodies, to reanimate them. At first blush, this sounds like a noble idea. To further his goal, however, he undertakes increasingly unethical research progressing from grave robbery to murder in order to obtain specimens fresh enough for his experiments. Violent and zombie-like, the resulting reanimated corpses retain little of their original humanity. Like Victor Frankenstein before him, and Dr. Walter Bishop of Fringe after him, West ultimately suffers terrible repercussions for pursuing his scientific work with such intellectual arrogance, and moral unaccountability. Thanks to cult classic films about Dr. Herbert West, such as Reanimator in 1985, Bride of Reanimator in 1990, and Beyond Reanimator in 2003, fans of the genre have good reason to think immediately of Lovecraft's character whenever reanimation is mentioned. Lovecraft's shadow looms large over Fringe, I'll give you the best example of Fringe acting as a love letter to Lovecraft, and that's the second season episode, Grey Matters. The episode is basically one long tribute to Lovecraft and his work. In the episode, the administrator of one mental hospital is named Dr. West, as in the reanimator himself. Another mental hospital visited by the team is Dunwich Mental Hospital, a reference to Lovecraft's story, The Dunnage Horror. A list of patients includes the names Joseph Slater, from Joe Slater in Lovecraft's Beyond the Wall of Sleep, Stuart Gordon, who's a filmmaker responsible for five movie and television adaptations of Lovecraft's works to date, including Reanimator, and a woman named Crampton, which I believe is a reference to Scream Queen actress Barbara Crampton, who has starred in three film adaptations of Lovecraft's stories, including, once again, Reanimator. The Fox Network, which runs Fringe, seems to appreciate the Lovecraft connection. During the third season of the show, Fox moved the series to the ever-unpopular Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time slot, which is known as the Slot of Death. Shortly before Fringe began airing on its new day and time, which was January 21, 2011, Fox ran Friday night reanimation advertisements that made a joke about the scheduling change. And that joke, those people in the know could recognize as a Lovecraftian joke. It said, you may think Friday night is dead, but we're going to reanimate it. Fortunately, the ad proved prophetic, and the series retained the ratings necessary to be renewed for a fourth season, despite the scheduling shift. That's just a little glimpse into some of the ways we can look at Fringe, and some of the attention that Fringe is receiving. I hope that... I've piqued your interest, and those of you who haven't seen the series will check it out. It's definitely worth watching. 
And who knows, you might even be interested in taking a look at fringe science, parallel universes, white tulips, and mad scientists. As you can tell, I'm excited about this project, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. And next time on Looking Back in a Genre History, we'll be talking about something completely different, and I look forward to joining you then. Thank you so much. There you go, Amy. Thank you. So, you know, Amy's been yeah from the bloody start as well. Amy, thank you very much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it's by Elliot Debodard. It is The Jaguar House in Shadow. This was a nominee for the Hugo Awards this year as well. It didn't win. I don't know what, actually. I never looked to see what it comes. Sorry, Elliot. But you know, I had things on my mind. Actually, I was listening to the, you know, I was at work on night shift and I had like a flaky 3G signal on my phone and it kept dropping out. You know, and <laughs> the biggest event on the year probably in science fiction terms and the little phone trying to see what, what was happening. But anyways, this is a fantastic story. It is narrated by Morag Edward. Morag is an artist and writer from Edinburgh. She's a member of the infamous spoken word collective of authors, Writer's Block, who, when actually not writing or publishing, performs at festivals, events and cabaret all around the country. There you go, Morag. Thank you very much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Jaguar House in Shadow by Elliot Debodard. The mind wanders when one takes Tiona on a cattle. If she allowed herself to think, she'd smell bleach, mingling with the faint, rank smell of blood. She'd see the grooves of the cell, smeared with what might be blood or faeces. She'd remember the pain insinuating itself into the marrow of her bones until it, too, becomes a dull thing, a matter of habit. She'd remember dragging herself upwards when dawn filters through the slit windows, too tired and wan to offer her blood to Tonatui the sun, whispering a prayer that ends up sounding more and more like an apology. The god, of course, will insist that she live until the end, for life and blood are too precious to be wasted, no matter how broken or useless she's become, wasting away in the darkness. Here's the thing. She's not sure how long she can last. It was Jaguar Captain Pali who gave her the Tionana cattle, opening his hand to reveal the two black crushed mushrooms, the food of the gods, the drugs of the lost, of the doomed. She couldn't tell if it was because he pitied her, or if it's yet another trap, another ambush they hope she'll fall into. But still, she took them. She held them, wrapped tight in the palm of her hands, as the guards walked her back. And when she was alone once more, she stared at them for a long while, feeling the tremor start in her fingers, the hunger, the craving for normality, for oblivion. The mind wanders, backwards, into the only time worth remembering. The picture lay on the table, Beside Onali's bloodied worship thorns, it showed a girl standing by a stall in the marketplace, holding out a cloak of emerald green quetzal feathers, with an uncertain air, as if it would leap and bite at any moment. 
two other girls stood silhouetted in the shadows behind her, as if already fading into insignificance. It wasn't the best one Onali had of Shuchito, by a large margin, but she'd been thinking about it a lot these days, about the fundamental irony of it, like a god's ultimate joke on her. Having second thoughts, at quite last, behind her, Onali's hand reached out to turn the picture over and stopped when his tone finally sank in. She turned to look at him. His broad, tanned face was impassive, a true knight's, showing none of what he felt. No, she said slowly, carefully. I'm not having second thoughts, but you are, aren't you? Atquattle grimaced. Onali, he was the one who'd helped her from the start, getting her the encrypted radio sets, the illicit nanos to lower her body temperatures, the small syringes containing everything from Tiananmen cattle inhibitors to endurance nanos. More than that, he had believed her, that her desperate gamble would work, that they'd retrieve Shochitl alive out of the madness that Jaguar House had become. This is too big, Adquatl said. He shook his head, and Onali heard the rest, the words he wasn't saying. What if we get caught? Onali chose the easiest way to dispel fear. Anger. So you intend to sit by and do nothing? Adquatl's eyes flashed with a burning hatred, and no wonder. He had seen the fall of his own house, his fellow eagle knights bound and abandoned in the burning wreckage of their own dormitories, the otter and the skulls knights killed, maimed or scattered to breathe dust in the silver mines. I'm no coward. One day the revered speaker and his ilk will pay for what they've done. But this, this is just courting death. Onali's gaze strayed again to the picture, to Shochitl's face frozen in that moment of dubious innocence. I can't leave her there. The resistance, Atquatl started. Anali snorted. By the time the resistance can pull the house down, it will be too late. You know it. There had been attacks. Two maglev stations bombed, political dissidents mysteriously vanishing before their arrest. She didn't deny the existence of an underground movement, but she recognised the signs. It was still weak, still trying to organise itself. Atquatl said nothing. But Anali was Jaguar Knight, and her training enabled her to read the hint of disapproval in his stance. Look, she said, finally, I'm the one taking the biggest risk. You'll be outside the house, with plenty of time to leave if anything goes wrong. If you're caught, you think I'd turn on you? Onali asked. After all they've done to Shochitl, you think I'd help them? Atquatl's face was dark. You know what they're doing inside the house. She didn't, but she could imagine all too well. Which is why she needed to pull Shochitl out. Her friend hadn't deserved any of this. I'm Jaguar Knight, she said softly and I give you my word that I'd rather end my own life than let them worm anything out of me. Atquatl looked at her. You're sincere, 
But what you believe doesn't change anything, doesn't it? I believe the revered speaker's rule is unlawful. I believe the Jaguar house had no right to betray its own dissidents or interrogate them. Isn't that what we all believe in? Atquatl shifted and wouldn't answer. Tell me what you believe in then, Onali said. He was silent for a while. Black one, take you, he said savagely. Just this once, Onali, just this once. Onali nodded. Promise. Afterwards, they'd go north, into the United States, or Shuya, into countries where freedom was more than a word on paper. They'd be safe. She finished tying her hair in a neat bun, a habit she'd taken on her missions abroad, and slid her worship thorns into her belt, smearing the blood over the skin suit. A prayer for whoever among the gods might be listening tonight, for fate, the black one, the god of the smoking mirror, who could always be swayed or turned away if you had the heart and guts to seize your chance when it came. Atquatl waited for her at the door, holding it open with ill grace. Let's go, Onali said. She left the picture on the table, knowing, all the while, why she'd done so. Not because it would burden her, but because of one simple thing. Fear. Fear that she'd find Shochitl and stare into her face and see the broken mind behind the eyes, nothing like the shy, courageous girl she remembered. Outside, the air was clear and cold, and a hundred stars shone above the city of Tenochtitlan, a hundred demons waiting in the darkness to descend and rend all life from limb to limb. Onali rubbed her worship thorns, trying to remember the assurance she'd always felt on her missions, why couldn't she remember anything now that she was home, now that she was breaking into her own house? Six months ago. The priest of the Black Ones sits cross-legged across the mat facing Xochitl and purses his lips as if contemplating a particular problem. His hair is greasy and tangled, matted with the blood of his devotions, and the smell that emanates from him is the rank one of charnel houses with a slight tang of bleach. He's attempted to wash his hands before coming and hasn't succeeded. Amusing how the mind sharpens when everything else is restrained. Shochitl would laugh, but she's never been much of one for laughter. That was Anali, or perhaps Tisipiani. No, she mustn't think of Tisipiani, not now must remain calm and composed, her only chance at surviving this. Mustn't ask herself the question, for what? I'm told, the priest says, that you started a ring of dissidents within this house. Shochitl remains seated against the wall, very straight. The straps cut into her arms and ankles, and the tightest one holds her at the neck. She'll only exhaust herself trying to break them. She's tried a dozen times already, with only bruises to show for it. The priest goes on, as if she'd answered. I'm told you work to undermine the loyalty of the Jaguar Knights, with the aim to topple the revered speaker. Shochitl shakes her head, grimly amused, toppling him as if that would work. The burgeoning resistance movement is small and insignificant, and they have no reach within the house, not even to Shochitl's pathetic, shattered splinter group. 
But there's right and wrong, and when Shalottle comes to take her soul, she'll face him with a whole face and heart, knowing which side she chose. The priest goes on, smug, self-satisfied. You must have known it was doomed. This house is loyal. Your commander is loyal. She has given you up rather than suffer your betrayal. Daisy Piani. No, mustn't think of that, mustn't. It's no surprise. Never has been. Not after everything Daisy Piani has done. Of course she has given me up, Xochitl says, keeping her voice steady. Jaguar knights aren't interrogators. We leave that to you. The priest shifts, unhurriedly, and, without warning, cuffs her, his obsidian rings cutting deep into her skin. She tastes blood, an acrid tingle in her mouth, raises her head again, daring him to strike again. He does. Again and again, each blow sending her head reeling back, a white flash of pain resonating in the bones of her cheek, the warmth of blood running down her face. When he stops at last, Xochitl hangs limp, staring at the floor through a growing haze, the strap digging into her windpipe, an unpleasant reminder of how close asphyxiation is. Let's start again, shall we? His voice is calm, composed. You'll show me proper respect, as is owed an agent of the revered speaker. He's not that. He's nothing, a man of no religion who dares use pain as a weapon, tainting it from mundane things like interrogation. But pain isn't that, it was never that. Shachitl struggles to remember the proper words, to lay them at the feet of the black one, her song of devotion in this godless place. I fall before you, I throw myself before you, offer up the precious water of my blood, offer up my pain like fire. I cast myself into the place from where none rise, from where none leave. O Lord of the near and nigh, O Master of the smoking mirror, O night, O wind. She must have spoken the words aloud, because he cuffs her again, a quick violent blow she only feels when her head knocks against the wall, ringing in her mind, the whole world contracting and expanding, the colours too light and brash. And again, and again, and everything slowly merges, folding inwards like crinkling paper, pain spreading along her muscles like fire. With icy water I make my penance. With nettles and thorns I bear out my face, my heart, through the land of the anguished, the land of the dying. She thinks, but she's not sure, that he's gone. When the door opens again and footsteps echo under the ceiling, slow and measured, deliberate. She'd raise her head, but she can't muster the energy. Even focusing on the ground is almost too tiring, when all she wants is to lean back, to close her eyes, and dream of a world where Tornatio the sun bathes her in his light where the smell of cooking oil and chilies wafts from the stalls of food vendors, where feather cloaks are soft and silky against her hands. The feet stop, leather moccasins and emerald green feathers, and the tantalising smell of pine cones and copal incense. Tessie Piani, 
No, not the girl she knew anymore, but Commander Tesipiani, the one who sold them all to the priests, who threw Shochitl herself to the star demons to be torn apart and made as nothing. Come to gloat, Shochitl asks, or tries to, because it won't come out as more than a whisper. She can't even tell if Tesipiani hears her, because the world is pressing against her, a throbbing pain in her forehead that spreads to her field of vision until everything dissolves into feverish darkness. Onali took the ball court at a run, descending from the stands into the eye shape of the ground. On either side of her loomed the walls, with the vertical stone hoops teams would fight to send a ball through, but it was the season of the lifting of the banners, and the teams were enjoying a well-earned rest. It did mean, though, that only one imperial warrior guarded the cordoned-off entrance. It had been child's play to take him down. One thing people frequently forgot about the ball court was that it was built with its back against the Jaguar house, and that the dignitary's box at the far end shared a wall with the house's furthest courtyard. That courtyard would be guarded, but it was nothing insurmountable. She'd left at Coatl at the entrance, disguised as an imperial warrior. From afar, he'd present a sufficient illusion to discourage investigation, and he'd warn her by radio if anything went wrong outside. The boxes were deserted. Onali made her way in the darkness to that of the revered speaker, decorated with old-fashioned carvings depicting the feats of the gods, the feathered serpent coming back from the underworld with the bones of mankind the black one bringing down the second sun in a welter of flames and wind. The box was the highest one in the court, but still lacking a good measure or so to get her over the wall. After all, if there was the remotest possibility that anyone could leap through there, they'd have guarded it to the teeth. Onali stood for a while, breathing quietly. She rubbed her torn ears, feeling a trickle of blood seep into her skin. For the black one, should he decide to watch over her. For Tonatio the sun, who would tumble from the sky without his nourishment. For Xochitl, who deserved better than the fate Tessipiani had dealt her. She extended in one fluid, thoughtless gesture. Her nails were diamond sharp, courtesy of Atquatl's nanos, and it was easy to find purchases on the carvings, not thinking of the sacrilege of what the black one might think about fingers clawing their way through his effigies. No time for that any more. Onali hoisted herself up on the roof of the box, breathing hard. The wall in front of her was much smoother, but still offered some purchase as long as she was careful. It was, really, no worse than the last ascension she'd done, clinging to the outside of the largest building in Jiajin Tech's compound on her way to steal blueprints from a safe. It was no worse than endless hours of training when her tutors had berated her about carelessness. But her tutors were dead or gone to ground, and it was the house on the other side of that wall, the only home she'd ever known, the place that had raised her from childhood, the place where she could be safe and not play a game of endless pretense, where she could start a joke and have a dozen persons voicing the punchline, where they sang hymns on the winter solstice, letting their blood pool into the same vessel. Her hands, slick with sweat, slid out of a crack. 
For one impossibly long moment she felt herself fall into the darkness, caught herself with a gasp, even as chunks of rock fell downwards with a clatter of noise. Had anyone heard that? The other side of the wall seemed silent. There was only darkness, enclosing her like the embrace of Grandmother Earth. Onali gritted her teeth and pushed upwards, groping for further handholds. Two years ago. Commander Tesipiani's investiture speech is subdued and uncharacteristically bleak. Her predecessor, Commander Malinali, had delivered grandiloquent boasts about the house and its place in the world, as if everything was due to them in this age and the next. But Tesipiani says none of that. Instead, she speaks of dark times ahead, and the need to be strong, and the need to endure. She doesn't say the words, civil war, but everyone can hear them all the same. Shachital and Anali stand near the back. Because Anali arrived late and Shachital waited for her, the only place they could find was near the novices, callow boys and girls, uneasily settling into their cotton uniforms and fur cloaks, still too young to feel their childhood locks as burdens. Still so young and innocent it almost hurts to think of them in the times ahead. After the ceremony, everyone drifts back to their companies or to the mess halls. The mistress of the novices has organised a mock battle in the courtyard and Onali is watching with the same rapt fascination she might have for a formal ball game. Shochitl is watching Tisipiani. The commander has finished shaking hands with her company leaders and, dismissing her bodyguards, is heading straight towards them. Her gaze catches Shochitl's, holds it for a while, almost pleading. Onali, Shochitl says urgently. Onali barely looks up. I know. It had to happen at some point anyway. Daisy Piani catches up with them, greets them both with a curt nod. She's still wearing the full regalia of the commander, a cloak of jaguar fur and breeches of emerald green quetzal feathers. Her helmet is in the shape of a jaguar's head and her face pokes out from between the jaws of the animal as if she were being consumed alive. Walk with me, will you? She asks, except that she's not asking, not anymore, because she speaks with the voice of the black one and even her slightest suggestion is a command. They don't speak for a while walking through courtyards where knights haggle over patoli gameboards, where novices dare each other to leap over the fountains, the familiar, comforting hubbub of life within the house. I wasn't expecting you so soon, Onali, although I'm glad to see you've returned, Tacy Piani says. Her words are warm, her voice isn't. I trust everything went well, Onali spreads her hands in a gesture of uncertainty. I have the documents, she says. Williamsboro Tech were making a new prototype of computer with more complexity, a step away from consciousness, perhaps. Shachital wonders what kind of intelligence computers will develop when they finally breach the gap between automated tasks and genuine sentience. All that research done in military units north of the border, eyeing the enemy to the south. They'll be like us, she thinks. 
They'll reach for their equivalent of clubs or knives, claiming it's just to protect themselves. And it won't be long until they sink it into somebody's chest. Just like us. The Americans have advanced a technology then, Tessie Piani says gravely. It's the house's job, after all, watching science in the other countries of the fifth world and making sure that none of them ever equals Greater Mexico's lead in electronics, using whatever it takes, theft, bribery, assassination. Onali shakes her head impatiently. This isn't something we should worry about. Perhaps more than you think, Tessipiani's voice is slightly annoyed. The war won't always last, and we must look ahead to the future. Onali says, the war, yes. You made an interesting speech. Tessipiani's smile doesn't stretch all the way to her eyes. Appropriate, I felt. Sometimes we have to be reminded of what happens out there. Onali says, I've seen what's out there. It's getting ugly. Ugly? Shuchitl asks. Onali's eyes drift away. I saw him court Shuchitl. Reverend Speaker Eastley. He's, her hands clench, a maddened dog. It's in his eyes and in his bearing. It won't be long before the power goes to his head. It's already started. The war. Tessipiani shakes her head. Don't you dare make such a statement. Her voice is curt, as cutting as an obsidian blade. We are Jaguar Knights. We serve the Mexica Empire and its revered speaker. We are nothing more than that. Never. But, Shuchitl starts, we're nothing more than that, Tessipiani says again. No, that's not true. They're Jaguar Knights. They've learned to judge people on a word or a gesture because when you're out on a mission, it marks the line between life and death. They know. You're mad, Onali says. Back when Commander Malinali was still alive, all the houses, all the knights, spoke against Eastley, including ours. What do you think the revered speaker will do to us once he's asserted his power? I'm your commander, Tessipiani says, her voice rising slightly. That, too, is something you must remember, Jaguar Lieutenant. I speak for the house. I'll remember. Onali's voice is low and dangerous, and Shochitl knows that here, now, they've reached the real parting of the ways. Not when Tessipiani was appointed company leader or commander, not when she was the one who started assigning missions to her old friends, but this, here, now, this ultimate profession of cowardice. Good, Tessipiani says. She seems oblivious to the undercurrents, the gaze is passing between Onali and Shochitl, but then she's never been good with details. You'll come to my office later, Onali. I'll have another mission for you. And that, too, is cowardice. What she cannot control, Tissipiani will get rid of. Shochitl looks at Onali and back at her commander, who still hasn't moved, and she feels the first stirrings of defiance flutter in her belly. Onali dropped the last few handspans into the courtyard and immediately flattened herself against the wall. A bad reflex. There was a security camera not a few handspans from her, 
but all it would see in the darkness was another blur. Her skin suit was made of non-reflective materials that wouldn't show up on infrared, and she'd taken nanos to lower her skin temperature. There'd be fire and blood to pay later, but she really didn't care anymore. Everything was silent. Too much so. Where were the guards and the security? Where was Tessipiani's iron handhold on the house? She'd felt the fear from outside, the wide, empty space in front of the entrance, the haunted eyes of the Jaguar captain she'd pumped for information on the maglev, all the horror stories she'd heard on her way into Tenochtitlan. And yet? The back of her scalp prickled. A trap. They'd known she was coming. They were expecting her. But she'd gone too far to give up, and the wall was a bitch to climb anyway. She drew the first of her throwing knives and, warily, progressed deeper into the house. Still nothing. The hungry silence of the stars, the warm breath of Grandmother Earth underfoot, the numinous presence of Charlottel, God of Death, walking in her footsteps. A shadow moved across the entrance to the courtyard, under the vague shapes of the pillars. Onali's hand tightened around the haft of the knife. Staying motionless would be her demise. She had to move fast to silence them before they could raise the alarm. She uncoiled, leapt, with the speed of a rattlesnake, straight towards the waiting shadow. A knife was meant to catch the shadow in the chest, but it parried with surprising speed. All she could see of the shadow was a smear in the darkness, a larger silhouette that seemed to move in time with her. The shadow wasn't screaming. All its energy was focused into the fight, pure, incandescent, the dance that gave their gods their due, that kept on a due the sun in the sky and Grandmother Earth sated, the one they'd both trained for all their lives. There was something wrong, very wrong, with the way the shadow moved. She parried a slash at the legs and pressed it again, trying to disarm him. In the starlight, she barely saw the sweeping arc of its knife. Moving diagonally across her weak side, she raised her own blade to parry, caught the knife and sent it clattering to the ground and moved in for the kill. Too late, she saw the second blade. She threw herself backwards, but not before it had drawn a fiery slash across her skin suit. They stood, facing one another, in silence. You... You move like us, the shadow said. The voice was high-pitched, shaking, and suddenly she realised what had been wrong with its moves, the eagerness, the abandoned of the unblooded novices. You're a boy, she breathed, a child. Black one, no, I'm no child. He shifted in the starlight, letting her catch a glimpse of his gangly awkwardness. Don't make that mistake. I apologise. Onali put all the contriteness she can in her voice. She softened the muscles of her back to hunch over in a submissive position. He might not be able to see her very well, but he'd still see enough to get the subconscious primers. The boy didn't move. Finally, he said, as if this were an everyday conversation, 
If I called, they'd be here in a heartbeat. You haven't called. Onali kept her voice steady, trying to encourage him not to remedy this oversight. In the starlight, she saw him shake his head. I'd be dead before they came. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, Onali said, the word torn out of her before she could plan for it. I'm not here to kill you. I believe you. A pause. Then you've come for the house. To avenge your own. Her own? Oh, then she understood. He thought her a knight, but not of the jaguar. An eagle, perhaps, or an otter. Any of the former elite of Greater Mexico, the ones revered Speaker Eastley had obliterated from the fifth world. She'd forgotten that this was no mere boy, but a novice of her order, who would one day become a knight, like her, like Tesipiani, like Shuchitl, he'd heard and seen enough to know that she hated the house's heart and guts, but he hadn't yet connected it with who she was. I'm just here for a friend, Onali said. She... she needs help. Help. His voice was steadier, almost thoughtful. The kind of help that requires infiltration and a knife. She had more than knives, all the paraphernalia of knights on a mission, stun guns, syringes filled with endurance and pain nanos, but she hadn't got them out. She wasn't sure why. Tacy Piani had turned the house into something dark that needed to be put down, and she'd do whatever it took. And yet, it was still her house. She's in the cells, Onali said. In trouble, the boy repeated flatly. I'm sure they wouldn't arrest her without good reason. Black one, take him. He was so innocent, so trusting in the rightness of whatever the house did, like her or Shachitl, ages before their eyes opened. She wanted to shake him. I have no time to argue with you. Will you let me pass? The boy said nothing for a while. She could feel him wavering in the starlight, and, because she was Jaguar Knight, she also knew that it wouldn't be enough, that he'd call for the guards, rather than trusting himself to some vague stranger who'd tried to kill him. 
No choice, then. She moved before he could react, shifting her whole weight towards him and bearing him to the ground, even as her hand moved to cover his mouth. As they landed, there was a crunch like bones breaking. For a moment, she thought she'd killed him, but he was still looking at her in disbelief, trying to bite her. With her other hand, she reached into her skin suit and withdrew a syringe. He gasped when she injected him, his eyes rolling up, the cornea an eerie white in the starlight. Now that her eyes were accustomed to the darkness, she could see him clearly, his skin smooth and dark, his hands clenching and relaxing as the Tiananmen cattle inhibitor took hold. She could only hope that she'd got the doses right. He was wirier than most adults, and his metabolism was still that of a child. As she left the courtyard, he was twitching, in the grip of the hallucinations that came as a side effect. With luck, he'd wake up with a headache and a vague memory of everything not being quite right, but not remember the vivid nightmares the drug gave. She thought of beseeching the gods for small or large mercies, but the only two in her wake were the Black One and Shalotl, the Taker of the Dead. I'm sorry, she whispered, knowing he couldn't hear her, knowing he would hate and fear her for the rest of his days. But I just can't trust the justice of this house. I just can't. Nine years ago. Shoshitl stands by the stall, dubiously holding the cloak of Quetzal feathers against her chest. It's a little too much, don't you think? No way, Onali says. If your idea of clothing is tawdry, sure, Tacey Piani says, with an amused shake of her head. This is stuff for almond-eyed tourists. And indeed, there's more Asians at the stall than true-blood Mexica, though Onali, who's half and half, could almost pass for Asian herself. Oh, come on, Onali says. It's perfect. Think of all the boys queuing for a kiss. You'd have to start selling tickets. Shachitl makes a mock stab at Onali, as if withdrawing a knife from under her tunic. But her friend is too quick and steps aside, leaving her pushing at empty air. What's the matter? Eagles ate your muscles, Onali says, always belabouring the obvious. Shotitl looks again at the cloak, bright and garish, but not quite in the right way. No, she says, finally. But Tacey Piani's right, it's not worth the money. Not even for a glance from Pali, who's much too mature anyway to get caught by such base tricks. Tacey Piani, who seldom brags about her triumphs, simply nods. There's another stall further down, she says. Maybe there'll be something. There's a scream on the edge of the market, not that of someone being robbed, but that of a madman. What in the fifth world? Shachitl puts back the cloak and shifts, feeling the reassuring heaviness of the obsidian blades at her waist. Onali has already withdrawn hers, but Tacey Piani has moved before them all, striding towards the source. Her hands are empty. Ahead, at the entrance to the marketplace, is a grounded air car, its door gaping empty. 
The rest of the procession that was following it is slowly coming to a stop, though with difficulty, as there is little place among the closely crammed stalls for fifteen air cars. The sea of muttering faces disembarking from the air cars is a hodgepodge of colours, from European to Asian and even a few Mexicas. They wear banners proudly tacked to their backs in a deliberately old-fashioned style. Coyotes and rabbits drawn in featherwork spread out like fans behind their heads. It's all oddly familiar and repulsive at the same time, a living remnant of another time. Revivalists, Shuchitl says aloud, which means... She turns, scanning the marketplace for a running man, the unwilling sacrifice victim, the only one who had a reason to break and run. What Shochitl sees instead is Tacy Piani, walking determinedly into a side aisle of the marketplace as if she were looking for a specific store. The revivalists are gathering, harangued by a blue-clad priest who is organising search parties. Idiots! Onali curses under her breath. She's always believed more in penance than in human sacrifice, and the revivalists have always rubbed her up the wrong way. Shochitl isn't particularly religious, and has no opinion either way. Come on, she says. They find Tacy Piani near the back of the animal section, and, kneeling before her, is a hunched man, still wearing the remnants of the elaborate costume that marked him as a sacrifice victim. He's shivering. His face contorts as he speaks words that Shochitl can't make out amidst the noises of the chattering parrots and screaming monkeys in their metal cages. As they come closer, Tesipiani makes a dismissive gesture and the man springs to life, running away deeper into the marketplace. The search party's coming this way, Onali says. Tesipiani doesn't answer for a while. She's looking at the man and, as she turns back towards her friends, Shochitl sees burning hope and pity in her gaze. They won't catch him, she says, He's strong and fast. He'll make it. Onali looks as though she might protest, but doesn't say anything. We should head back, Tisipiani says, finally. Her voice is toneless again, her eyes dry and emotionless. On their way back, they meet the main body of the search party. The fevered eyes of the priest rest on them for a while as if judging their fitness as replacements. Tesipiani moves, slightly, to stand in the priest's way, her smile dazzling and threatening. She shakes her head once, twice. We're not easy prey, she says aloud. The priest focuses on her, and after a long, long while, his gaze moves away. Too much chew. Tesipiani is right. They won't be bested so easily. They walk on, through the back streets by the marketplace, heading back to the house to find some shade. Nevertheless, Shochitl feels as though the sunlight has been blotted out. She shivers. They're sick people. Just mad, Onali says. Don't think about them anymore. They're not worth your time. She'd like to, 
but she knows the priest's eyes will haunt her nightmares for the months to come. And it's not so much the madness, it's just that it doesn't make sense at all, this frenzy to spread unwilling, tainted blood. Daisy Piani waits until they're almost back to the house to speak. They're not mad, you know. Yes, yeah, sure, Onali says. Daisy Piani's gaze is distant. There's a logic to it. Spreading unwilling blood is a sin, but Tonatiuh needs blood to continue shining down on us. Grandmother Earth needs blood to put forth maize and cotton and nanomachines. It's still a fucking sin, no matter which way you take it. Onali seems to take the argument as a challenge. Tacey Piani says nothing for a while. I suppose so. But still, they're only doing what they think is good. And they're wrong, Shachitl says, with a vehemence that surprises her. Perhaps, Tacey Piani says, and perhaps not. Would you rather take the risk of the world ending? She looks up into the sky. Of all the stars falling down upon us, monsters eager to tear us apart, there's silence then. Shachitl tries to think of something, of anything to counter Tacey Piani, but she can't. She's been too crafty. She always is. If you believe that, Monali says with a scowl, why did you let him go? Tacey Piani shakes her head, and in her eyes is a shadow of what Shachitl saw back in the marketplace. Pity and hope. I said I understand, not that I approved. I wouldn't do anything I didn't believe in wholeheartedly. I never do. And that's the problem, Shachitl thinks. It will always be the problem. Daisy Piani does what she believes in, but you're never sure what she's truly thinking. The cell was worryingly easy to enter. Once Anali had dealt with the two guards at the entrance, who, even though they were Jaguar specialists, barely a step above novices, really should have known better. She had gone for the windpipe of the first and left a syringe stuck into the shoulder of the second, who was out in less time than it took her to open the door. Inside it was dark and stifling. A rank smell like the mortuary of a hospital rose as she walked. Shachitl, she whispered. There was no noise. But against the furthest wall was a dark lump and as she walked closer, it resolved into a slumped human shape. Black one, no, please watch over her, watch over us all. Straps and chains held Shachitl against the wall, and thin tubes snaked upwards into a machine that thrummed like a beating heart. Tion and a cattle and peotl and truth serum and the gods knew what else. It was only instinct that kept her going forward, a horrified, debased part of her that wouldn't stop, that had to analyse the situation no matter what. She found the IVs by touch, feeling the hard skin where the syringes had rubbed, the bruises on the face, the broken nose, the eyes that opened, not seeing her. Shochitl, Shochitl, it's all right, I'm here. Everything is going to be all right, I promise.
but the body was limp. The face distorted in a grimace of terror, and there was, indeed, nothing left of the picture she'd held onto for so long. Come on, come on, she whispered, fiddling with the straps, her sharpened nails catching on the leather, fumbling around the knots. The cold, detached part of her finally took control, and, forcing herself not to think of what she was doing, she cut through the straps, one by one, pulled out the IVs, and gently disengaged the body, catching its full weight on her arms. Shochitl shuddered, a spasm like that of a dying woman. Daisy Piani, she whispered. She's not here, Onali said. Gently, carefully, she rose with Xochitl in her arms, cradling her close like a heart child. Black one, take you, Tespiani. Oblivion's too good for the likes of you. I hope you burn in the Christian hell with the sinners and the blasphemers and the traitors. I hope you burn. She was halfway out of the house, trudging through the last courtyard before the novices' quarters, when she became aware she wasn't alone. Too late. The lights came on, blinding, unforgiving. I always knew you'd come back, Conali, a voice said. No matter how hard I tried to send you away, black one take her for a fool. Too easy. It had been too easy from beginning to end, just another of her sick games. Black one, screw you, Onali spat into the brightness. That's all you deserve, isn't it, Tissy Piani? The commander was just a silhouette, standing by the sound of her, only a few paces away. But Shochita lay in Onali's arms, a limp weight she couldn't toss aside, even to strike. Tacy Piani didn't speak, but of course she'd remain silent, talking only when it suited her. You sold us all, Onali whispered, to the yellow-livered dogs and their master, to the cudgels and the syringes. Did she mean so little to you? As little... Or as much as the rest, Tessie Piani said. Onali's eyes were slowly accustoming themselves to the light, enough to see that Tessie Piani's arms were down, as if holding something, a new weapon, or just as a means to call on her troops. And then, with a feeling like a blade of ice sliding through her ribs, Onali saw that it wasn't the case. She saw that Tessie Piani was carrying a body just like her, the limp shape of the boy she downed in the courtyard. You, she whispered. Tessie Piani shifted, her face, slowly coming into focus, could have been that of an Asian statue, the eyes dry and unreadable, the mouth thin to a darker line against her skin. Espetlal of the Atempan Kalpuli clan, given into our keeping fifteen years ago. Shame warred with rage and lost. I don't care. You think it's going to atone for everything else you did? Perhaps. 
Tessipiani said. Perhaps not. Her voice shook slightly, a bare hint of emotion. Not enough, never enough. And you think rescuing Shachital was worth his life? Onali scanned the darkness, trying to see how many guards were there, how many of Tessipiani's bloodless sycophants. She couldn't take them all. Fire and blood, she wasn't even sure she could take Tessi Piani. But the lights were set all around the courtyard, on the roofs of the buildings, no doubt, and she couldn't make out anything but the commander herself. As, no doubt, Tessi Piani had meant all along. Bitch. You're stalling, aren't you? Onali asked. This isn't about me. It's never been about me. It's about you, Tessi Piani, about the house and the priests and Xochitl. No, Tessi Piani agreed gravely. Finally, something we can agree on. Then why Xochitl? A cold certainty was coalescing in her belly like a snake of ice. You wanted us both, didn't you? Oh, Nali. Tessi Piani's voice was sad. I thought you'd understood. This isn't about you or Shuchitl. It's about the house. How could she say that? You've killed the house, Onali spat. You never could see into the future, Piani said. Even two years ago when you came back. When you warned us about betrayal. You're the one who couldn't see the revered speaker was insane. You're the one who... Onali! Tessipiani's voice held the edge of a knife. The house is still standing. Because you sold it. Because I compromised, Tessipiani said. You! Onali choked on all the words she was trying to say. You poisoned it to the guts and the brain, and you're telling me about compromise? Yes, something neither you or Shachitl ever understood, unfortunately. That was too much. Irreparable. Without thought, Onali shifted Shachitl onto her shoulder and moved, her knife swinging free of its sheath, going for Tessipiani's throat. If she wouldn't move, wouldn't release her so-called precious life too bad, it would be the last mistake she'd ever make. She'd half expected Tessipiani to parry by raising the body in her arms to sacrifice him, as she'd sacrificed so many of them. But the commander, as quick as a snake, knelt on the ground, laying the unconscious boy at her feet, and Anali's first swing went wide, cutting through only air. By the time she'd recovered, Tessipiani was up on her feet again, a blade in her hand. Onali shifted and pressed her again. Tessie Piani parried, and again, and again. None of them should have the upper hand. They were both Jaguar knights. Tessie Piani might have been a little less fit, away from the field for so long, but Onali was hampered by Shachitl's body, whom she had to keep cradled against her. Still, still, Tessie Piani's gestures were not as fast as they should have been. Another one of her games... Onali didn't care, not any more. In one of Tessipiani's over-wide gestures, she saw her opening and took it. Her blade snaked through, connected, sinking deep above the wrist. Tessipiani jumped backward, 
her left hand dangling uselessly, but she'd shifted her knife to the right, and like so many left-handers, she was ambidextrous. You're still good, Tasty Piani admitted, grudgingly. Onali looked around once more. The lights were still on, and said, You haven't brought anyone else, have you? It's just you and me. Tasty Piani made a curt nod, but when she answered, it had nothing to do with the question. The house still stands. There was such desperate intensity in her voice that it stopped Nali for a few seconds. The eagle knights were burnt alive, the otters dispersed into the silver mines to breathe dust until it killed them, the coyotes died to a man defending their house against imperial guards. They died with honour, Onali said. Honour is a word without meaning, Tisipiani said. Her voice was steady once more. There are five hundred knights in this house, out of which one hundred unblooded children and novices. I had to think of the future. Onali's hands clenched. And Shochitl wasn't part of the future? Tisipiani didn't move. Sacrifices were necessary. Who would turn on their own except men loyal to the revered speaker? The cold was back in her guts and in her heart. You're sick, Onali said. This wasn't worth the price of our survival. This wasn't. Perhaps, Tisipiani said. Perhaps it was the wrong thing to do. But we won't know until long after this, will we? That gave her pause. So unlike Tacy Piani to admit she'd been wrong, to put her act into question. But still, it changed nothing. And now what? Onali asked. You've had your game, Tacy Piani, because that's all we two ever were to you, weren't we? Tacy Piani didn't move. At last, she made a dismissive gesture. It could have gone both ways. Two knights killed in an escape attempt tragically gone wrong. She spoke as if nothing mattered anymore, her voice cool, emotionless, and that, in many ways, was the most terrifying. Or a success, perhaps, from your point of view. I could kill you, Onali said, and knew it was the truth. No one was perfectly ambidextrous, and were Anali to drop Shochitl as Tessie Piani had dropped the boy, she'd have the full range of her abilities to call upon. Yes, Tessie Piani said, a statement of fact, nothing more. Or you could escape. Fuck you, Onali said. She wanted to say something else that when the revered speaker was finally dead, she and Shochitl would come back and level the house. But she realised then that it was only thanks to Tissi Piani that there would still be a house to tear down. But it still wasn't worth it. It couldn't have been. Gently she shifted Shochitl, catching her in her arms once more, like a heart child. I didn't come here to kill you she said, finally. But I still hope you burn, Tessie Piani, for all you've done, whether it was worth it or not. 
She walked to the end of the courtyard, into the blinding light, to the wall and the ball court and the exit. Daisy Piani made no attempt to stop her. She still stood next to the unconscious body of the boy, looking at some point in the distance. And all the way out into the suburbs of Tenochtitlan, in the air car at Coatl was driving, she couldn't get Daisy Piani's answer out of her mind, nor the burning despair she'd heard in her friend's voice. What makes you think I don't already burn? She'd always been too good an actress. Black one, take you, she said aloud, and she wasn't really sure anymore if she was asking for suffering or for mercy. Alone in her office once more, her hands, her thin skeletal hands, reached for the shriveled mushrooms of the Tionana cattle and everything slowly dissolves into coloured patterns, into meaningless dreams. Even in the dreams, though, she knows what she's done. The gods have turned their faces away from her, and every night she wakes up with the memories of the torture chambers, the consequences of what she's ordered, the consequences she has forced herself to face like a true warrior. Here's the thing. She's not sure how long she can last. She burns every day of her life, wondering if what she did was worth it, if she preserved the house or corrupted it beyond recognition. No, no. Only this is worth remembering, that, like the escaped prisoner, Onali and Shachitl will survive, going north into the desert into some other more welcoming country, keeping alive the memories of their days together. And over greater Mexico, Tonatiuh the sun will rise again and again, marking all the days of the revered speaker's reign, the rising tide of fear and discontent that will one day topple him. And when it's finally over, the house that she has saved will go on, into the future of a new age, a pure and glorious age, where people like her will have no place. This is a thought the mind can hold. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Aliette's Aliette. You know what, next year, Hugo Awards, don't worry about it. We just pick ourselves up and carry on. <laughs> so, nice timing as well. We have Andy Thomaswick has come in with his Hugo reviews. We've got some nice reports, you know, nice comments about this Andy's little fact article. And he's doing the City in the City by China Mabel. So, Andy, sir. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Hugo Review. I'm Andy Thomaswick, and this month we'll be covering The City in the City by China Mealville. And I apologize in advance if I pronounce his name wrong. The first thing I should clarify is that this is the first Mealville book I've ever read, so I don't have much to compare it to. But sometimes a fresh perspective on an author can be valuable for the purposes of each individual book. After doing some research, it seems a lot of people were attempting to compare this book to his other ones, and finding distinct differences between them. You will get no such comparisons from me, as I'm judging this one on its own merits. The City in the City is wrapped in the clothes of a standard detective murder mystery, but that belies the real draw of the story. 
In fact, it is another one of the books that introduces a completely new concept and then explores that concept in detail. The concept in this case is one of two coexistent, vaguely Balkan-slash-Arabic cities, Bezel and Ulkhuma. By coexistent, I mean they exist literally on top of one another, spatially. There has been some speculation that Mayville is using an extreme macroscopic version of the duality principle of quantum mechanics that allows a particle to exist two places at the same time. That might be stretching the analysis a bit, as duality also implies that when the particle is observed, it then exists in a single place only. In the world of the city and the city, inhabitants of either city cannot observe so much as a particle in the other city for fear of invoking the seemingly omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent big brother power of the book called Breach. Breach's use is both a verb and a noun in this book, and it's always capitalized. As a verb, it refers to the action where an inhabitant of one of the cities interacts with an object or inhabitant of the other. For example, Tidor Borlu, the main character of the book and a resident of Bezel, could walk into a crosshatch with Olkuma at what is seemingly an otherwise normal intersection and bump into a resident of Olkuma, thereby committing a minor act of breach, bringing out the standard scary people in black suits who literally appear out of nowhere and disappear back into nothing. Such an accidental infraction will only bring the most minor punishment breach can mete out, a memory wipe. The severity can range all the way up to voluntary culprits completely disappearing. It is never really explained why the chastisement is so severe for seemingly minor infractions, and that is one of the story's weaknesses. It requires a significant amount of suspension of disbelief to truly accept the ever-present law enforcement agency is just there and has been for the entire existence of the two cities. At one point, a minor character in the book mentions that Breach is an alien power, but that is the extent of the explanation that the book gives as to the creation and purpose of this seemingly crucial part of the story. As a literary device for the true purpose of the book, Breach plays this part well, but leaves the reader with more questions than answers. Of course, an experienced character like Borlu would never normally run afoul of the authorities in the first place. He is a lifelong resident of Bezel, and a policeman to boot, so he knows the rules and knows what happens when you cross them. He is a master of unseeing, which is what the occupants of each city do to make sure they do not interact with the other city. It's beaten into the reader's head repeatedly throughout the novel how many times Borlu has to make it a point not to see the other city. At one point in the novel, Borlu is given the license to pursue his case over in Okuma, and does this by passing through the only gate between the two cities, located under the main central government building. Once in Okuma, he seems to have a much harder time unseeing his hometown, but it does not excuse the amount of time that the book devotes to explaining the process of unseeing itself and why it is important. The process of unseeing should be an obvious metaphor for that favorite literary bogeyman, complacency. Some people go about their normal lives, especially in big cities like New York and London, where Mayville is from, unseeing the people and places around them that don't directly affect them. They just don't use the word in everyday parlance. Of most literature that attempts to allude to that idea, the city in the city does it very effectively, largely because of the centrality of breach and unseeing to the plot of the story. If they weren't such a central part of the story, Borlu's life would be much easier. The story follows him as he attempts to chase a murderer through both cities, and even a third theoretical city between the city, Ornsini. Yes, folks, that is three cities in the same geographical location, all because some scary men in black make it so for no apparent reason. The plot of the murder mystery is not your standard one, given all the extra complications thrown in its way by both the characters and the cities themselves. The murder even starts confusingly. Which city did the murder happen in? And did the murderer illegally breach into the other city to dump the body? The plot in itself is still somewhat open-ended as well, as it feels like the villain's motivations and methods were still left somewhat unstated. This might be to allow the reader to come to their own conclusions, but I personally like stories that show me what the author specifically intended, and like them even more when what that author wanted is a new, unique idea. Of course, it is not in Borlu's lot to have an easy life, 
His background, shown in glimpses throughout the novel, seems to have been none too pleasant, and he is not alone in his misfortune. The lives of the various denizens in both Bezel and Okulma don't exactly seem to be joyous, though those in Bezel are faintly jealous of their Okulma brethren, as Okulma seems to have better relations with the outside world. The dismal world around them feeds into the interactions between the characters, especially when citizens of the two cities deal directly with each other. At one point in the novel, Borlu meets his counterpart in Okulma, who is unhelpful to say the least. In fact, it seems like there are very few actual friendly relationships in the entire novel. The lack of the familial warmth doesn't diminish the overall quality of it, though. Overall, it is a challenging but rewarding read, and most importantly to me, there are plenty of unique ideas in The City in the City. That alone makes it well worth reading and deserving of the awards it's received. In addition, it is cleanly and well-written, and has an interesting plot and well-developed characters. Certainly a worthy addition to the Pantheon of Hugo Award winners, despite some of its weaknesses. That's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time we'll be covering the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, the winner for 2009. Thanks for listening, now get out there and start reading. There you go. Andy, thank you very much. Next up is an interview with UK science fiction writer Gene Fenn. So I'm very proud to have on the line Jane Fenn. Jane, nice of you to come on Starship Sofa. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. That's lovely. Now, Jane, just before we even get into writing and everything like that, I struggle so much with your name. Now, why is it? Where's this I? Because you've got an I in Jane. Now, whereabouts does that come from in in the English language? Um, a fit of adolescent pretentiousness. I'm ashamed to admit, sometime <laughs> in my teens, my teenage rebellion was to give myself an extra vowel. And that's where it's come from, is it? It is, it <laughs> is. I basically renamed myself because I hated my name so much, but I was too much of a coward to completely change it. Oh, that's fantastic. Because I remember when I had to go back, I thought, oh, I've emailed Jane before, I'll have a look. And then I realised, because I was saying, is it Jenny? Is it Janie? Just, this is just seconds ago when I was going to phone, and I thought, oh, she's emailed, I'll, I'll just have a little look. So that's a great story. Thank you so much. So... Tell us then, Jane, how long, because, you know, you kind of burst on the UK scene here with some great novels coming out, but how, I was wondering how long you've been writing? A long, long time, like most writers. It takes an awful long time to actually get published. I've probably been writing seriously since about 1998, when I went on a rather excellent um, genre-based workshop week called One Step Beyond, run by Liz Holiday, who's a science, another science fiction writer, and she uh, got a load of us together that thought we wanted to be writers, and... At the end of the week, um, a couple of people never were going to do it again. A couple of people were getting there, and two of us, interesting, the, the only two women on the course applied ourselves to the extent that we uh, are now professionals. The other woman on the course was Karen Travis, who you might have heard of. Yes, I have, to be yes. quite honest, yes. So, Jane, are you, would you put your li- I know, labels and everything like that, would you say you are a science fiction writer? I am. It's not hard science fiction. I mean, by the very strict definition um, that some people apply, it was more, it's nearer science fantasy because a lot of my technology is over the Clark horizon, if you know what I mean. It's, it's indistinguishable from magic. It works. It's internally consistent, but I couldn't tell you how it works. I'm also more interested in people than technology. I mean, I love the science fiction universe. I love being able to play in such a... Um, wide-ranging milieu. I love to be able to write in a place with no boundaries. I love to be able to bring in ideas. But ultimately, the story is about the interaction of people. So 
I am science fiction, but I'm willing to be told that I'm not. How do you kind of how do you come against your technology, and how do you get your technology to work when others, you know, it's, like you say, it's hard science fiction? They've got the details wrote out. Is it just easier for you just to make it up? Well, my starting point is actually cosmology, bizarrely, because I studied um, a fairly soft version of astronomy at university, and a lot of my stories come from astronomical what-ifs, cosmological what-ifs, the universe being a far stranger place than we can possibly understand. I therefore decided that I was going to try and understand it by writing about it. So it's a bit of a big task I've set myself. Um, so the overall way that I look at things is probably a little bit slant-wise, which fits me into science fiction. But from the point of view of the hard physics, the technology, I'll tend to work out what I want to achieve do some research to check whether it's at least plausible, and then go with that. And if it's not plausible, I try and work out how I can fudge it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you say that, you know, you're getting to like, do you understand, you know, through your writing and through science fiction, do you understand the universe a little bit better? I try. <laughs> <laughs> it is just so mind-blowing as well, you know, and it's great that you can kind of just slot it in, you know, and kind of make up your worlds in science fiction. Um, yes, I mean, writing, I think a lot of writers would say this, writing is a way of making sense of the world. It's just that science fiction writers think a bit bigger. We make sense of the entire universe. Now, I've got your new book here as well, Bringer of Light. And, Jane, honestly, what a fun... I mean, your covers of all your books have been stunning, to be quite honest. And this is, like, for me, you know, probably one of the number one reasons where you're drawn to a book in a bookshop is the covers. And, like I say, Bringer of Light is a, just a fantastic cover there. I know. I'm incredibly lucky, actually. A lot of authors don't get much input into their covers, but um, Glant's great because they let me basically say, I'd quite like to see this, and then I can enter into a dialogue with the artist, and I've had the same artist for all my covers, and this one is, yes, this is so good, the cover is so good that I, I'm thinking of actually printing a copy of it out and putting it above my desk, because I was well chuffed with that. Yes, it is. It's, and it, it is, for me, this is kind of science fiction. You, you've got like some sort of ship just crashing into some massive planet it is indeed. there. That's just fantastic. And, and that does happen in the book. The, the only tiny weeny thing is um, the little ship that's running away is the wrong shape. But you know what? I can live with that. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you don't mind, then tell us about Bringer of Light. What, what is it about? Um, it's part of a series called the Hidden Empire series. It's the fourth book. But I'm trying to write fairly self-contained books because one of the things that bugs me as a reader is if you pick up something, oh, that sounds interesting, and it says part three or five or whatever, and you sort of begin to read it and you think, I can't make any sense of this because I haven't read the previous one. So in theory, it should stand on alone, but it also um, brings together quite a lot of stuff that's happened in the earlier books. I've got a far future history, um, 7,000 years in the future, where for 4,000 years, humanity was ruled over by benevolent aliens. At least they thought they were benevolent. Um, but they overthrew them a thousand years ago. Unfortunately, it turns out they're actually not gone. They look like human. They, they are effectively mutated humans. And they are still secretly in charge. There's a very small group of people that know this, and they're trying to deal with the problem. The problem, of course, turns out to be way more complicated than they thought. Um, in Bringer of Light, the, um, there's, a, male, there's, a, there's a little bit of gender politics in my books. The, um, the females... It, they're called the sheep with deliberately after the Celtic legend, although that's a bit ironic because they're not fae or anything like that. They just kind of played on the legend. And one of these days I'll get to write the books about that. Um, they are all female, and the males 
which um, everyone also believed died out, haven't. And this book is about um, our heroes finding that out the hard way and discovering that uh, your enemy's enemy is not necessarily your friend because the male and female sheep hate each other a lot, but uh, they're quite happy to use humans in their secret games. So I'm just trying to, because I'm on your website there now, and so Mm. was your first one that you came out with, the book, was that The Principle of Angels? Principles of Angels, yes. And that one was set on a... um, a planet that's a democracy by assassination, a bit of wish fulfillment there. And it wasn't um, space opera, it was, uh, I think somebody called it planetary romance, which I thought was a very nice term, I think that's an H.G. Wells term. And that introduces some of the characters and um, the slightly quirky setup of my universe. So if, like say, say one of the listeners was going to dip into Jean Fenn, where, where would you recommend this? Would you recommend the start at Principle of Angels or... Can I jump in to see a consorts of heaven or just anywhere, really? Um, Principles of Angels is probably the best one if you are after science fiction. Consorts of Heaven takes place um, in a completely different world. At the same time, there is a strong relationship between the two books, which I can't tell you because it would be a spoiler, but they appear to be unrelated unless you've read both of them, at which point you should get, hopefully go, aha. I do like doing that. I like doing that. Um, as a writer, because I like it as a reader, I like to give readers an aha moment where they think, oh, yes, that thing that happened earlier, <laughs> right, that's paying off. Or, oh, my goodness, the characters do not realise that this is the case, but I do. I, I like to read that, so that's what I like to write. <laughs> is, so, um, right thing, and this Bringer of Lights come out now. Is, have you got any future works planned or anything like that? Are you, are you writing now? I am. I'm actually writing the fifth um, Hidden Empire novel, which is called Queen of Nowhere, which is due out next year. Uh, there are more. It's a, it's a big, long plot. Um, as for whether that's what I get to do after Queen of Nowhere, that depends on publishers and various other things, because, of course, I've also had other ideas, as you do, and having written five books in a series in a row, I'd quite like to write something that's slightly off at a tangent and then come back to it in an ideal world. I was going to ask you that. I mean, like you see it, if this, these books are covering like a, a big plot, how do you, in your mind or, or, or a computer or anything like that, how do you go about tackling such a big, you know, wordage count, you know, like story? How do you get all them th- strands together? Um, a lot of it is by the seat of my pants. <laughs> I, there, there, there are some things that I've known from the start are going to happen in the very vaguest of terms. And I've planted seeds that I knew I was going to be germinating, paying off later. But one of the great things about writing a series is that you surprise yourself, or more often the characters surprise you. You have a rough idea of what kind of thing might be happening, and then they'll throw you a curveball and you think, oh, this is way more interesting, I'm going to go with this. I also probably shouldn't admit this, but I used to write and run uh, role-playing games, and you have to think faster than characters that are actually your friends there. So you do get used to some quite twisty and turny plotting and thinking on your feet when you run um, big games. And I think that's helped a lot in having an overarching meta-plot, because I do think long-term, because when I was doing games, I always thought long-term, you know, from the point of view of a game that would go on for several years on a weekly basis. So um, it's just how my mind works, I think. Is, is then the, the craft of writing easy for you? Or is it because I always like to ask this question, you know, like you, some writers who you think would be just fantastic at it, you know, it's like cutting veins and every word's a, you know, just the worst thing in the world to get on the screen. What's it like for you? 
Um, I have a lot more problem with first drafts than I do with rewriting, which is quite unusual. I mean, obviously, um, there's the million words of crap, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is totally true. I have written at least a million words of crap, and no one will ever read them. Um, but now I've passed through the apprenticeship, and I'm on journeyman status. The main problem I have is that I've got a lot of ideas, but I've got to turn them into narrative. And once I've actually got a narrative, even if there are bits missing, even if the actual structure isn't quite there, even if the way I've expressed myself isn't fantastic, I can knock it into shape. But the act of draining the idea out of my head and putting it into text is indeed like nailing jelly to the ceiling. <laughs> now, that's a nice Someday. one. I like that one. <laughs> you know, Jane... You, you, I guess you've been in this kind of business now, like you say, many a, a long time. And I don't want to kind of put you on the spot, but is there, like, say, one book maybe or one author that you know really kind of inspired you? Oh, it's it's always tricky when I'm asked this question, um, and every time I'm asked it, I give a different answer. From the point of view, probably of influencing what I was trying to do, um, probably if I have to pick one, Ian M. Banks, but there are so many others. When you were like a child, you know, were you, were you gobbling down science fiction books at, at an early age as well? Oh, well, I, I have another shocking revelation about my past, which is that I grew up in a house with no books. My parents didn't read, except my dad read The Observer on Sunday. Um, so I didn't know anything about science fiction or, in fact, books. So all my initial books were media tie-ins. I was very proud of my collection of Doctor Who novels when I was about 10. I had about 30 of them. And I initially only read media tie-ins, mostly science fiction ones and Star Wars and things like that. Um, and then I discovered a copy of A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin in a gift shop. I thought, oh my goodness, I've not seen the film straight TV of this, but it's fantastic. At which point I went into my local WH Smith and found the correct section and basically read everything I could find. <laughs> it's funny, you know, because just for, for me personally as well, I didn't actually pick up a book Till I was, oh, I must have been about 22 year old. You know what I mean? I was like a, a little tinker, oh, should I, I, I say. I was, you know what I mean? I was like lighting fires and playing out and doing all sorts. And it wasn't, you know what I mean, well into me. I was, I think, about 21, 22, and I, I found a book. And from then, you know, that's when the kind of the tidal wave of, you know, consuming fiction kind of kicked off. So there's no, there's no harm in that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad it's not just me. Do you, do you sometimes feel that there's all these books that you should have read earlier that everyone you know read when they were younger and you have to go, mm-hmm, and pretend you've read them? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing that exactly now because we've, we've just been on our, like, happy holidays there. We went to Greece and I, I finished a, I think it was a Jack McDivitt time travel story, but I, in it, two days and I was kind of, but I've just got myself a Kindle so that it's great where you can just buy on the Kindle there and oh, yeah. then. So in Greece, in my little hotel, you know, lobby. I bought, and I've never read it because of the film June. You know, <laughs> Frank Herbert one. Yeah. And I thought I've never. I'm, and I always on Starship Sofa like years ago. I was kind of. I could not read it because of Sting and them metal underpants. That image. You know, it's like it's totally spoiled me. Me reading of June. And I thought, well, I'm old enough now to to tackle it. You know, I've I've getting over my initial shock of stinging underpants. And like you say, I'm halfway through there and just what a fun. You know, if I'd only been wise enough to pick it up and try and block out that memory, I, you know, I'd enjoy it a lot sooner. I did actually see the film before I read the book of Dune as well, but um, I'm a girl, so the stinging metal underpants wasn't quite so traumatic for <laughs> yeah. me. No, it was odd. It's just totally, you know, I, I couldn't actually pick the book up. And I, you know, one no, of me... I, I could see that. 
<laughs> so yes, there is, and there is like you always, you know, you, especially like doing this show, you always someone says, Tony, have you read that? And you're never going to read anything. Do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes I might catch a short story by a writer or anything, but there's certainly, you know, there's always things you've missed, you know, especially in, in oh, the yeah. back history. Jane, I was looking at your blog today. And I, and I thought it was great. You had a little kind of comment there that you look into the future. You know, you, you keep looking because you're a science fiction writer. You know, it's always exciting to look into the future. But what you see sometimes isn't very happy or isn't very exciting. I don't know if you just want to enlighten a bit on that. Um, I think it's possibly... Well, I, I wouldn't want to be writing near future science fiction now because it's, we live in exciting times but not particularly good times, I don't think. And we live in times where change is so much faster than it's ever been, or perhaps that's just my perception, I've reached my 40s and everything else is going too fast for me, I don't know. Um, so I wouldn't want to be writing about the near future. I'm not certain I want to be living in it, but I'm stuck with it. <laughs> is it, I mean, I know, we, you know, like say, there's all sorts of like nastiness and evenness going on, but there is, you know, it does seem the, the kind of the books that we read in the science fiction, you know, technology in, in some ways has caught up. You know what I mean? I know you mentioned on your blog, it's not exactly the same as Gibson's, you know, universe mm. he described. But we, we have got this Internet that seems now to be, you know, anything's achievable. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, because I read too much cyberpunk um, at an impressionable age, I had this idea that the future was going to be a lot glitzier than it was. Or, and also that it was going to happen in America and that we'd still be living in lovely rural England and we could just read about it. And it turns out a lot of the stuff that was predicted in the 80s has come true, but not in the ways we expected. It's, you know, we don't want full virtual reality. We want just convenience. We just want to keep doing the things we were doing before. We just want technology to help us, which really, if we thought that through, is always going to be the case. But it, it's a little bit of a contrast to this vague but glitzy vision I have had of, of how the future would be i wouldn't say it's made me disillusioned it's just made me more inclined to write things set along a lot further in the future yes and just kind of distance yourself from them things <laughs> yes I, and i think it's a very brave science fiction writer and probably a far better writer than far better writer than i that actually manage and um, people like charlie Strauss actually manage to take the near future world and create a really good novel out of it that doesn't date before it's published, although he says he's worried that he's now starting to. <laughs> well, Jane, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. Thank you very much for having me. That is Starship Sofa's show 200. Come on. Let's, you know, again, I'm always saying this, like, say, this is Starship Sofa. If anyone's got any ideas for anything, honestly, sitting there, you might have to be sitting on the, the biggest crack an idea go and just let me know let starships over know let me know starships over at gmail.com that would be fantastic if you want to participate in starships over you want to narrate do a, a bit of artwork for starships over or you know you've, you've got something even better to tell us about let me know do you know what i mean it's how we kind of keep going on on this show is how how we get to show 200 until next week just like to say good night from me survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 